0: So first this morning, we'll read from Matthew 21, and we'll read verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That, the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, in Galilee. And then we'll skip over a few verses. We'll land on chapter 22, verse 15. This is a day or so after Jesus had entered Jerusalem. And at this point, he's in the temple talking with people. Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. This is God's holy and infallible word for us, his people, this morning. So there's a church in Jerusalem called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that church is built over the traditional sites of the places where Jesus was crucified and also where he was buried. This church has been viewed as a holy site and a holy building by various denominations for centuries upon centuries. And on the front of that church, and we have a picture of it this morning, on the front of that church there is a ladder sitting on a ledge. And that ladder isn't attached or anything, but it's been sitting there since the 19th century. Yeah, the 19th century. That ladder has been sitting there for close to 200 years. There are several groups that share a very complicated ownership arrangement of this church. And as far as I could track it down, the Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, Orthodox, Egyptian Coptic, Syrian... And Roman Catholic churches all claim different parts of that building. They all have a stake in the ownership and the maintenance of the thing. Now imagine serving on that property committee if you want to have some nightmares tonight. Now that ladder has sat there for year after year after year because nobody can agree on who has the authority and the right to go and take it down. You see, moving the ladder could mean claiming greater ownership of the building as a whole. So no one is willing to go up there and take the ladder down because that could start a fight. And no one is willing to let anybody else go and take the ladder down because that would mean granting to that other group a greater measure of ownership of the church. The immovable ladder of this church in Jerusalem is a situation just loaded with political tension. And of course, on all kinds of levels, Jerusalem is no stranger to political and religious tension. All the way back 2,000 years ago, in those passages that we read today, Jesus is stepping into explosive cultural and religious dynamics. And in these passages, we see those dynamics come out in palm branches and trick questions. Palm branches and trick questions. In Matthew 21, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, and his arrival sets off the countdown for an explosion. In that first text that we read for today, the crowd is not Welcoming a great teacher or a religious figure, really. What they're doing is they're holding a political rally that's full of revolution. The palm branches in that passage were symbols of Jewish rebellion against Roman rule. When the people were calling Hosanna to the Son of David, they were declaring that this was their new political party. This is our new political king. Those palm branches were a way of saying, Long live the revolution. It was a call for an uprising against Roman rule. So Jesus comes in with all of this fanfare, but he sends out mixed signals to the people in Jerusalem. Usually a mighty general or a king would come riding in on a great big war horse and get the battle started. But Jesus comes riding into town on the colt of a donkey. And riding on a colt back then was something that a king or a general did if he came in peace. It'd be like a general coming into town, riding in a family minivan instead of in a tank. So no one quite knows what to do with this guy. They don't quite know what his plan is, and so they start feeling him out. They start testing to see what he's thinking. And over the course of Matthew 22, several groups come and they ask Jesus trick questions. They're all trying to get Jesus involved in some kind of dilemma, trying to get him to give a wrong answer so he ticks somebody off. And in the verses that we read for today especially, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him and they try to trap him with a political question. And of course, they start out with some nice, soothing, flattering words. Teacher, they say in verse 16, we know you're a man of integrity. We know that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed with men. You don't pay any attention to anybody. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the tax to Caesar Or is it wrong? If ever serpents spoke with honey tongues, this was the time. This is a loaded question. It's designed to have no right answer whatsoever. The Jews of Jesus' time were divided into so many different groups and subgroups and splinter groups that I couldn't even tell you about all of them. And all of them had their own pretty incompatible visions of what Israel should look like And how God's people should respond to the rule of Caesar over Israel at that time. The place was just full of politics and factions and infighting. But out of that big mess, we can pull out three big picture representative approaches that the Jews of Jesus' time took to Caesar's rule. And when we see those three main groups standing in the background of Matthew 22, we can understand the dynamics of these passages better. So, this morning we're going to briefly meet the Zealots, the Essenes, and the Herodians, the Sadducees. See how these, see how the, excuse me, see how answers to this trick question that they asked Jesus in Matthew 22 could have ticked all of those groups off. So, first, the Zealots. About 25 years after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, the Romans had required a census where all the Jews were required to go and register and pay some taxes to Rome. And in direct response to that tax, a guy called Judas the Galilean had led a revolt against the Romans. And obviously the Romans, just like all big empires, were not a fan of their people revolting. And so they crushed Judas's revolution quickly, vigorously, and brutally. But the spirit of that revolution had lived on in a group called the Zealots. The Zealots were always on the lookout for the next great leader to come in and throw off Roman rule and bring in a glorious new day for Israel. They wanted to burn the whole political order down and start over. And Jerusalem was full of people who thought the Zealots had it right. So if Jesus answered that question, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, the Zealots would be ragingly angry. These are people who just a couple decades before had started a full-scale rebellion over exactly this question. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, you can expect that the zealots would put him on their hit list that very minute. Of course you wouldn't pay taxes to the Romans. They were the enemy, and you never give the enemy an ounce of legitimacy. Now in 2008... John McCain was the Republican nominee for president, though, of course, he eventually lost to Barack Obama. And I remember watching a particular rally of McCain once. I don't remember what state it was, but there was this group of people who were there to support McCain and support the Republican cause. And someone in the audience got up and said something like, man, I am really, really scared of Obama. And McCain responded with, well, you know, you don't have to be scared of Obama he's a decent guy. No, really, you don't need to be afraid of my opponent. I think I'd be a better president than him, but you don't need to be scared of Obama. Now, you can imagine how the crowd responded to that. There was a lot of booing, and it kept getting louder and louder and louder the more McCain kept trying to make his point, and people were yelling back at him. The crowd could not believe what they were hearing. How could this Republican candidate possibly say anything good about his Democratic opponent? Watching that clip, I thought McCain totally lost himself that crowd, and I wonder if he lost himself the election. Jesus would be in a pretty similar spot with the zealots if he had said, Yes, it's right to pay the temple tax. The zealots wanted revolt, and they were not okay with anyone giving any measure of respect or credibility. To Roman rule. Now there was a second group that would have been equally annoyed by Jesus saying that people should pay taxes to the Romans. They would have been less violent about it, but they also had no interest in collaborating with the Romans, and that group was called the Essenes. Now the Essenes don't show up in the New Testament as much as some other groups. Their goal was to withdraw from the world and wait for the coming kingdom just out in the desert. So for the most part, they lived a lot how you might picture John the Baptist. They wandered out to the wilderness. They kind of lived out in the open. They had pretty rough food and clothing and they spent a lot of time yelling at people to repent because the kingdom was going to come someday. The Essenes basically said, this world is hopeless. We need to go out in the desert. We need to get away from the Romans and all the other human authorities. We need to repent of our sins and we need to sit and wait for the new kingdom. This group would have been really tuned out of paying any taxes to Rome or engaging with that whole system. They just wanted out of it. Their goal was to withdraw and wait. So the Zealots and the Essenes would both have been pretty ticked off if Jesus had said, yes, we need to pay this tax to Caesar. But there were other groups who had very different loyalties. The politically politically savvy Sadducees, the Herodians, and even a lot of the Pharisees had managed to acquire a great deal of power by cozying up to the Romans politically. They were big fans of the status quo. They were all about politicking to keep things calm and stable and quiet. Even if they weren't thrilled with everything Roman, the Sadducees had figured out how to work the political system and they wanted things to stay just the way they were. And these groups controlled a lot of the temple, a lot of the official religious rituals, and there were an awful lot of them in Jerusalem too. So if Jesus said, no, don't pay the tax, the zealots and the Essenes would have been thrilled, but all these other groups would have been ticked off. And you can bet if Jesus said, don't pay that tax, that very minute, someone would be running off to report to the Roman authorities, telling them that someone else, Another Galilean, not Judas this time, but Jesus. Another Galilean, well, he's trying to start a rebellion about that tax. And the memory of previous rebellions would have been pretty fresh for the Romans. And you can bet that Rome would have had a pretty definite and pretty terminal approach to anybody who stood up in public and said, no, don't pay this tax. They did not appreciate people who challenged the system. Now, a number of years ago, when I was still living in Denver, Denver's professional basketball team, the Nuggets, had a particular player. And at at that time, he changed his political and his religious views very significantly, and he decided that he wasn't going to stand up for the national anthem anymore. He made it public that saluting the American flag was a sign of being allied with the oppressors, and he wasn't going to do it no more. So every time before a game... All the rest of the team, all the other team, all 12 to 15,000 people in that arena would stand up and respectfully face the flag while the national anthem was played. And this guy, instead of standing up, would just sit on the bench. Sometimes he'd put a towel over his head. Sometimes he'd just put his head in his hands, and he would not participate in the system. Now, you can guess about how well that went over with people. For weeks and months, there were letters to the editor demanding that this guy get traded or he get cut or he get thrown out of the country or at least he get thrown out of the state because he was not respecting the order of how things should be. Now, if Jesus said, no, don't pay the temple tax, there would have been a lot of people around him who would have felt just as outraged. It would seem tremendously disrespectful and politically dangerous to go against that tax for the Sadducees, the Herodians, and these other groups. Now these groups were always watching each other. They were always on edge. They were always ready to go for each other's throat and also go after anybody who seemed to be taking the other person's side. So regardless of what answer Jesus gave to that question, someone was going to be ticked off. The Zealots wanted an excuse to pick up weapons and start the revolution. The Essenes wanted to opt out of the whole political order of the day. The Sadducees and the Herodians were always ready to run off and set the Roman legions on anyone with rebellious tendencies. Whatever Jesus said, some significant interest group would start to tune him out or make plans to take him down. So to the innocent or even the not-so-innocent bystanders there, Jesus would have seemed trapped. But Jesus quickly turns the tables and he gives his own tricky answer to their trick question. Jesus is handed a live bomb and he just casually hands it right back. First, in verse 18, Jesus tells his questioners straight up that he knows that this is a trap. He knows what they're doing. Their flattering words aren't fooling him. You hypocrites, he says. Why are you trying to trap me? And then Jesus turns the trap around And puts his questioners in a bind. Now I said earlier this whole passage takes place in the temple. And the temple was God's holy place. It was holy ground. You did not bring unholy or unclean things in there. And you didn't tolerate worship of anything beside the true God in that space. But when Jesus asks his questioners to show him the coin used for paying the tax to Caesar. They're able to bring him that denarius. And a denarius was not just any old coin. The Jews actually had gotten special permission from Rome to make different coins so they wouldn't have to use the denarius all the time. And those Jewish coins were pretty small, probably copper, and they didn't have any kind of picture or image on them. They were good enough for day-to-day business. They weren't worth a whole lot, but those were the coins of the Jewish people. But in contrast to that, the denarius was a big silver coin. It was pretty valuable, probably worth a whole day's wages. And what's more significant about the denarius was that it was the emperor's coin. On the front of the denarius, there was usually a picture of the emperor portrayed in god-like fashion. The Romans worshipped their emperors as deities, and the denarius proclaimed that this man, this image on this coin, represented true divinity. And then often, if you'd flip the denarius over, on the backside, there'd be another picture of Caesar. And often, that picture of Caesar would show the emperor as the high priest, as the one who stood between the gods and humanity. A denarius in your pocket was a visible, tangible, physical reminder that Caesar claimed to be the high priest, the true king, and God himself. So when Jesus is faced with this trick question in the temple, he responds with a trick of his own. If anyone really believed in the Lord God, they should have been kind of hesitant to carry Caesar's coin, and they should have been really careful not to bring it into God's temple. But the people in the temple, the people trying to trap Jesus with this question about Caesar and God, they don't have any trouble producing this idolatrous coin. They have something that idolizes Caesar even when they're standing in the temple. So when Jesus asked them in verse 20, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? He's got them. They've got to admit that they have Caesar's coin with Caesar's portrait and Caesar's inscription. And anybody who has that is already paying loyalty to Caesar. And so Jesus tells them, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God." If you're already using the emperor's coin, how can you object to giving it back to him? If you've bought into the system, then you belong in the system. Now in verse 17, the people had actually asked Jesus if it's right to give taxes to Caesar. And in verse 21, Jesus says to them, give back, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. If they're willing to use the coin that Caesar has given them, they should be willing to give Caesar his money. So Jesus turns the table on his opponents, and in verse 22, they're amazed, and they go away, and they leave him alone. They had hoped to trap Jesus into an answer that would have the zealots or the Romans or somebody out for his blood, but instead they're exposed as hypocrites themselves, and they're left with nothing to say. So on the surface level of this text, Jesus has diffused a loaded situation. He's responded with his own tricky answer to a trick question, and he's left his opponents embarrassed and silent. But on a deeper level, Jesus has given us deeper insights into what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. The whole Gospel of Matthew intends to show us Jesus as God's coming King. Jesus is the descendant of David. Jesus is going to be God's forever king. Jesus is not going to bow to Caesar. But at the same time, Jesus is not going to overthrow Caesar. Jesus respects, recognizes the earthly kingdom of Caesar, but he also relativizes and limits it. So against the zealots, Jesus recognizes that some things really do belong to Caesar. Jesus recognizes that there are some things that are Caesar's. He makes it clear that he hasn't come to overthrow Caesar. He's not going to be the king of the zealots. He isn't going to come start a big fight and bring in some new national political order. And he's also, unlike the Essenes, not going to call everybody just to tune out and go live in the wilderness. Jesus gives Caesar his proper place. Now the question that Jesus was asked in verse 17 assumes that you have to choose between serving Caesar and serving God. The question assumes that it's impossible to give allegiance both to your governor and to your God. But Jesus says that it's possible to do both. There are things that legitimately belong to Caesar's. And so Jesus tells his listeners to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And this theme comes up a lot of other places in the Bible too. In Jeremiah 29, God's people are carried off to exile in Babylon in this terrible, sinful, awful place to live. But still, Jeremiah brings them God's word, and God's word is for these people to seek the peace and prosperity of the city they live in. Even living in a corrupt, terrible place, God's people are called to respect the authorities and to work for the good of the nation. And Romans 13 tells believers to submit to the governing authorities, to pay the taxes that are due, to give the respect that authorities are owed. 1 Peter 2 tells believers even to submit to the emperor and to the governors, to the human authorities. Christians live with this perpetual temptation to step back from the evil world out there, to withdraw from broader society, to make our own little Christian areas, or to try to overturn secular society and to make our own little alternative, better kingdoms. We have this temptation to minimize our contact with the outside world, to step back from everything secular, to get away from the government, to keep as far away from Caesar and his ways as possible, And to do things our own way. But that's not exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to recognize the proper authorities in the human realm. And to live fully engaged with the places that he's put us. People who want to follow Jesus need to respect the government. We need to respect the country. We need to respect the earthly authorities that have power over us. There are things that belong to Caesar. So when we're at a game and the flag goes up and a national anthem gets gets played, it is proper for us to stand and give due respect. We have an obligation to participate in political processes. We have an obligation to pay taxes. We have an obligation to be engaged with our country and our community. We have an obligation to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city we live in. Now, of course, if Christians on the one hand live with that temptation to withdraw, to step back, to get away, to discount the political order of the day, we also live with the temptation to make our own earthly society, to make our country, our nation, into the ultimate thing. Christians have always struggled with identifying our own nation and our own people with the kingdom of God. And so we need to remember that while some things belong to Caesar, some things are not Caesar's against the Sadducees, the Herodians, and a whole bunch of other groups, Jesus insists that some things do not belong to Caesar. Some things do not belong to Caesar. In the time of Rome, every kingdom on earth had its own God, and just about every God was tied to this or that particular kingdom. God and nation were all wrapped up together. A nation's god legitimized the authority of that nation, and the nation's political status reflected on the power of their god. In the ancient world, serving the god and serving the nation meant exactly the same thing. That's why the denarius had a picture of Caesar as god and Caesar on priest. Caesar wanted to claim the total allegiance of everybody in his empire. You could have some other gods on the side if you liked, But your first and your primary and your ultimate allegiance had to be to Caesar. Caesar, the God King. But of course, Christians only have ever recognized one God King, and his name is Jesus. In the text that we read for today, Jesus gives actually a surprising amount of room to Caesar. But he also locks Caesar up in some pretty clear boundaries. Jesus tells his audience, go ahead and you can serve Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he tells them, give to God what is God's. And of course, ultimately, everything belongs to God. In the end, following Jesus demands everything that we have. And if following Jesus comes into conflict with anything else, with serving the government, with doing the will of the nation, then the government, the political authorities, the country, has to take the back seat. Christians need to choose to follow God's will, not the will of the nation. Now, often Christians can serve their country very loyally while also serving God wholeheartedly. But sometimes following Jesus has to mean challenging the emperor. Loyalty to God may have to mean disloyalty to the emperor. And that can be true both when the emperor sets himself against Christianity And when the emperor tries to co-opt Christianity and make our faith into just something that serves his political ends. Nero is a pretty well-known Roman emperor who set out to wipe out Christianity. He persecuted Christians, he tortured them, he executed them in mass. He hated the faith and anybody who claimed to follow it. In Nero's time, choosing to follow Jesus could cost you your life. And people had a very clear choice to make. But there was another emperor a couple centuries later. His name was Constantine, and he was the first Roman emperor who became a Christian. And he commanded that the whole empire become Christian. But part of why Constantine wanted to be Christian was because he wanted this great, big, powerful God to bless whatever military campaigns he embarked on. And one side effect of Constantine's forced conversions was that the endorsement of Christianity became a politically good move. It became pleasant and profitable to be a Christian. Adopting the faith became good politics. And so being a Christian, or a Christian maybe, became harder and harder. Because it was hard to untangle what was following Caesar and what was following Christ. People sometimes got just enough Christianity that they didn't actually need to make any sacrifices. They got just enough of a veneer of Christianity that they didn't actually need to follow Christ. Now certainly it's better for any given country to have Christian values, to follow the Christian faith, but there's always a danger in that situation that the nation will require loyalty to Christ as long as that loyalty fits under loyalty to country. Wherever we are, we are called to make our country better but we are called to give our ultimate allegiance to God. It's good for us to rejoice in our country. It's good for us to respect our country. It's good for us to rejoice in the many blessings that we have, especially in this country we live in where we are so blessed and we have so many things so good. But we should never, as Christians, never worship our country. Give to Caesar everything that belongs to Caesar, but keep what is God's for God alone. So in the New Testament, we see Jesus beginning to bring in God's kingdom, but we also see that that kingdom isn't here yet. Against the Essenes, Jesus brings in an already and a not yet kingdom. And really, it's against all of these groups that Jesus brings in an already and a not yet kingdom. The Sadducees wanted to just go with the rule of the day, sort of baptize it a little bit and say, this is good enough, we can work with this. The Essenes wanted to just withdraw from the world and say, this kingdom is worthless, we're going to wait for the new one, see you later. The Zealots wanted to burn everything down and start all over with their own new national kingdom. But all of those approaches fall far, far short of God's true vision for His kingdom jesus brings a kingdom that comes in now but also a kingdom that we have to wait and hope for ultimately everything does belong to god and god will ultimately make everything right the crowd who welcomed jesus into jerusalem on that first palm sunday did get things partly right jesus truly was the coming king jesus was the one who was going to come and make everything right Jesus was the one who was going to save God's people. But Jesus wasn't bringing in the kind of kingdom that they expected. Jesus wasn't bringing in a political kingdom that was going to have certain physical boundaries, was going to fight and kill and make a new Israel right there. But Jesus brought in a kingdom that was going to bring in all the nations, a kingdom that was going to change the whole world and do away With the need for fighting and violence and war. And because we follow the true King, because we follow Jesus who will make everything right, we are free to work for the good wherever we find ourselves here and now. But we're also liberated to live in hope. We don't need to make things perfect now or be disappointed. We do the best we can and we leave the rest for God. Recently, many theologians like to talk about God's kingdom as the area of God's effective reign. God's kingdom is the realm of God's effective reign. And what that basically means is that wherever God's will is being done, God's kingdom has come. So today, whenever we do God's will in our lives, God's kingdom is coming there. Wherever life is good, wherever justice is served, wherever Jesus is recognized as Lord and King, we see glimmers of God's coming kingdom. We don't need a revolution to be part of God's kingdom right now. Christ is our king. We can live today as citizens of God's kingdom. And we also have hope and knowledge and trust that we will live forever in God's kingdom. And those two truths, the fact that we live in a kingdom that's come already and that hasn't yet come, sets us free from all kinds of false dilemmas. Even at the best of times, this world is not perfect. Even at the best of times, politics is a dirty game. Different sides are always battling for power, for prestige, for position, and it's often hard to see how things can ever be made right. If our hope was in any earthly kingdom, we would be hopeless. There are better and worse governments, better and worse Caesars, but if Caesar is the final power, we could only live and die without ultimate hope, because Caesar is no ultimate king. So in the end, we have to come back. If we want true hope, we have to come back to giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God what is God's. Unlike the Zealots, we don't find our mission in continually revolting against the political order. Unlike the Essenes, we don't find our mission in withdrawing from the world and just waiting around for some future hope. And unlike the Sadducees, we don't shrink our faith to fit the current political realities. We don't revolt against the proper authorities. We don't withdraw from everything. We don't assimilate to the ways of the world. So in your life, if you're excited about pursuing justice in the world, if you're excited about hope and making things right, well, go for it. God's kingdom is coming. On the other hand, if you despair of this world, if you look around and say, this place is terrible and I don't see any hope, well, you do have hope, because Jesus is king, because Jesus reigns now, and because Jesus will bring his kingdom. So on this Palm Sunday, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but more than that, we give to God what is God's. We welcome Jesus as the true king. We work and pray and hope for the coming of the kingdom of God. We call out, Hosanna, save us, to Jesus, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings.